Hi, my name's Tim. It's great uh, to be with you and join with you today. It'd be really helpful to have that outline um, and uh, a Bible open at Ephesians chapter 5. The Bible often uses the image of walking to sort of describe a person's way of life, a person's lifestyle. Now, we're pretty familiar with the idea of lifestyle. We now have lifestyle TV channels. Uh, There's a leisure lifestyle, a consumer lifestyle, a party lifestyle, fitness lifestyle, probably even a student lifestyle. But what is a student lifestyle? I I think it's probably a combination of procrastination and panic, isn't it? That's a student lifestyle. Uh, But walking, it's a helpful image to think about your lifestyle, your way of life, because it, it involves both sort of the way you walk, your gait, and the direction you're going, the destination you're heading for. What is a Christian lifestyle? Is it distinct? Is it any different to just the normal Aussie lifestyle? And I look at you and you don't look any different to the people outside. Do you actually have a different lifestyle if you follow Jesus? Well, God wants to say, yes, very different, very distinct. And the Bible talks about this lifestyle as walking, as patterns of behaviour and directions and ambitions. And in Ephesians 5, that's the main image that Paul uses, this image of walking, of of a lifestyle. But we need to just go back a little bit, see where we are. I hope you've been with us um, over the last uh, few weeks as we looked at Ephesians. If not, I'll try and catch you up. In chapter 4, verse 1, the whole tone of the letter changes from a whole lot of teaching. What's true? What's Jesus done? to what we're to do in response. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So this is sort of a a structure of the book of Ephesians, the letter. Chapters 1 to 3 is this indicative, the calling, describing what God has done. Chapters 4 to 6 is the imperative, what to do, how to walk, to walk worthy of our calling. And the arrow between is the, 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 the connection. Because of our calling... Live this way. Walk worthily. And, uh, 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 sorry, I I need to just backtrack one little thing on this. That is, when you see the way to walk, please don't misunderstand. If you're not yet a Christian, don't think that if you happen to walk this way or you choose to walk this way, this makes you a Christian. Any more than living in a garage makes you a car. It doesn't, does it? Don't, so don't misunderstand it. Instead, if you're not a Christian yet, I want to urge you to come to Jesus first. Come to trust him, know him, believe in him, and then work out how to walk, how to live your life. But if you are a Christian, then Paul wants you to know that when you became a Christian, you started a whole new life. And he describes it as this old self, new self. You used to live this way, now you've become a new person. And so don't live the old way anymore, live this new way of the new person. Whatever is your former way of life, put it off. Now you have this new life, put it on, you've been created to live. Something distinct has happened, something supernatural has happened to give you a new life. Becoming a Christian is not just like taking a vitamin supplement, gives you a bit more zest in life. It's a, it's a revolution, a totally new and different lifestyle because you are now a new person. And that means a new walk, a new way of walking. 
if you're with us two, two, three weeks ago, actually, the week before Easter, we looked at the last bit of chapter 4, uh, where he talked about uh, walking differently in your speech. Honest, not dishonest. Upbuilding, not, not uh, destroying people. Uh, a new way of walking with your emotions and what come from them. Instead of rage and slander, kind and compassionate. And even what you do with your hands, stop thieving and do something useful so you can give away. And now today we look at the next section where Paul builds on more of what this new life, this new walk looks like. And he uses the idea of walk three times. In verse 2, walk in the way of love. In verse 8, walk as children of light. And in verse 15, Walk not as unwise, but as wise. The, the NIV sort of covers up, it says live, but the, the word behind it is actually the word walk. Walk in love as you've been loved by Christ. Walk as children of light, doing the things that please the Lord. Walk as wise, people who understand the Lord's will. So we're going to explore each of those in turn. Firstly, walk in love. Uh, it's sort of a funny metaphor, walk in love, but I guess the idea is something like let every step be love-soaked, every step shaped by love. But love is such a widely used and often misunderstood word today. I love cabbage. Well, actually, I don't, but some people might say that. I love my mum, but I hope I don't love my mum like you love cabbage. We talk about being in love. We use the word so widely it's hard to know what it really means. The meaning's been debased. Sometimes it just means sort of lust. But Paul, when he uses the word here, is very specific. He says in verse 2, Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is a very specific love. It's defined by Christ. He loved us and gave himself up for our sins. That is, this sort of love is the love of giving to the undeserved, of generosity to those who have no call on that generosity. He further describes it as a sacrifice to God. His love meant he gave his life as a full payment for our sin, for our evil deeds. Now, if you know anything about Christianity, I hope you've come to realise that Love is actually at the core of what Christianity is about. Not so much the call to love, but the reality that we are loved. That God has loved us. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That's this sort of love uh, that, that the gospel, the message of Christianity is all about. And so the Christian walk is filled with love. It's not just a walk which doesn't do wrong things. It's a positive walk of loving of giving of ourselves, our resources, our emotional energy for the good of others. Now, one way to clarify what you mean when you speak about something like love is to say what the opposite is. So if I want to describe humility to you, I could say, well, humility is sort of being lowly. It's being sort of shriveled up. That doesn't help very much, does it? But if I tell you what's the opposite of, you probably get the right idea. The opposite of humility is pride and arrogance, being full of yourself. Now you know, don't you? Well, what's the opposite of love? I want to just talk with the person next to you. What you think might be the opposite of love? 
haven't got anybody next to you, just shout across the aisle or, or something. Just talk to somebody. Don't feel on your own, okay? What is the opposite, you think, of love? All right, let's gather some ideas. Any suggestions? What's the opposite of love? Please. Hate. Hate's the obvious one, isn't it? Love, hate. And selfishness is, is another one. Thanks, Joe. What was that? Apathy is another one. I, don't, I just don't care. And there's some reality and truth in all of those. It's interesting, though, in this passage, the opposite of love for Paul here, the other things are true, is immorality. So in verse 3, do you see what he says? But amongst you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Walk in the way of love, but there shouldn't be immorality amongst you. Here, that's how Paul helps us understand what love is. That's quite strong language in verse 3. Not even a hint, not a whiff, not a rumour of immorality. And he picks two particular sorts of immorality here. It's not comprehensive, but it's very relevant. The first one, sexual immorality. It talks about sexual immorality, impurity, same, same sort of idea. The second one is greed. Sexual immorality, the word he uses is porneia, from which we get the word pornography. But it's much broader than pornography. It's all sexual activity outside a marriage between a man and a woman. So it includes adultery and prostitution, bestiality and fornication and homosexuality and pornography and anything like that. Now, some people say, come on, why is Christianity so obsessed with sex? Every time you talk about what morality is, you want to go to sex. Well, I don't think that's true. He mentions other things and there's a lot more the Bible talks about. But it is true that in the world that Paul talks in, people were sex obsessed. It was fairly common for a man who was married to not only have a wife, but at least one mistress, and even be involved in homosexual relationships as well. That was considered pretty normal in that world. It was very sex-obsessed. Our world is as well. And so Paul addresses something which is important for us. How do Christians walk when it comes to sex? And the Christian walk here is very weird because compared to our world, compared to the world that Paul wrote in, it's very, very, if you like, restrictive. It's sex only in one one sort of container. Why? Well, because sexual immorality is not loving. That's why. It's easy to illustrate it with, with things like adultery, isn't it? Now, adultery, I know, is made to look pretty sexy on the screen. Movies often sort of romanticise it. Of course, if you, if you feel in love with someone, or you feel in lust with someone, you'd, you'd go and sleep with them. But think about what happens to the family when there's adultery. What happens to the spouse? It's terribly destructive. It destroys the, the children. It affects those sort of up and down in the relationships and their, their, their neighbours and others as well. Adultery looks simple and it looks sometimes nice, but... It's very, very unloving. It's never loving to take somebody else's spouse and bed them, start an affair with them. But it's not just adultery. All sorts of sexual immorality are just plain selfish, usually. Lust is about self-gratification, using somebody else for my own satisfaction. 
But love is very different. If you think of walking in love when it comes to sex, I don't want you to think too much about this, but it, it, it means not looking for my gratification, but that of my wife, my spouse, wanting them to enjoy it rather than getting joy out of it for myself. It's a very different picture of sex than our world has. Our world has, has now moved to this idea of consent is the thing that makes sex right or good. The morality is all around consent. But I think that's a very low bar, isn't it? Because consent is what? It says, it's okay for us to have sex if you're okay with me using you and you using me. Mutual self-gratification, that makes it fine. That is a very low bar, isn't it? God sets the bar much higher. Sex should be an expression of genuine love to the other. And when it is, it's wonderful and beautiful. The second thing he, he uh, highlights is greed. It, greed is more a heart thing, is a, 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 uh, the word that's often used, is coveting. Now, you can do that in a sexual way, but here it's about material, that desire to acquire and accumulate more and more stuff. And if you think about our culture, that is our culture, isn't it? We're materialistic. We're greedy. We want more and more stuff. And it destroys so much. It's not just robbery and thieves. It's it's all sorts of manipulation. It's, It's the ambition that drives so many people in our culture. And it's the opposite of love, which is generous at heart, which wants to give to others rather than take as much as it can get, to give to the poor in other parts of the world, to give to the starving amongst us, to look after those who are suffering. Paul says the walk, to walk in love is not to be immoral, but instead to love and be generous. But he wants us not just to walk the walk, but also to talk the talk in verse 4. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which is out of place, but rather thanksgiving. The obscenities and dirty jokes, the, the sort of smutty language and humour is all around sex and toilets, isn't it? And unfortunately, it, uh, it sexualises topics that are not sexual. It debases people, especially women. And it debases sex. It becomes an object of crude and callous laughs. And so Paul says, not just don't be involved in the activity, don't even use the language of that, uh, of that sort of thing, the obscenity, the, the, the coarse joking, the dirty jokes. What's the alternative in Paul's mind? Well, the alternative is not just keep your mouth shut, just keep it clean. The alternative in verse 4 is thanksgiving, which is a positive thing, isn't it? Thanksgiving even for sex and beauty itself. So when I hear somebody say, man, he's hot, or she's hot, isn't she? It's not hard to imagine what's happening in their minds. But thanksgiving is very different to that. It's a wonderful thing to be able to say, thank you, God, for beauty, for wonderful beauty, because women are beautiful in the eyes of men. I presume some men are beautiful in the eyes of women. I don't know what that experience is like, but I assume that's true. But Thanksgiving is a very different reaction to, man, she's hot, isn't it? Such a different and a good reaction. And he says the outcome of that sort of walk in immorality in verse 5 and 6, is not very positive. 
You can be sure of this, no immoral, impure, greedy person, such a person as idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath is coming on those who are disobedient. Therefore, don't be partners with them. The end result of that sort of walk is the wrath and rejection of God. Now, please don't misunderstand Paul. He's not saying if you've once dropped the F-bomb, you're out, that's it. Now, he's talking about a walk, your lifestyle, your ongoing, unrepentant lifestyle. And he says, don't be deceived, because it's very easy to be deceived in this area. In fact, when it comes to sexual morals, many, even people who claim to be Christians, are deceived. In my own denomination, the majority of that denomination at the moment, I think, are deceived in this area. They think it's okay to live in sexual immorality and there'll be no consequences. But Paul has already said, don't be deceived. I want you to just try and imagine for a moment a community that walks in love like this, where there's no coarse joking, where there's no obscenities, where there's no sexual immorality. It'd be quite, I reckon, a wonderful community to be part of. I remember meeting a girl, she was a very attractive girl who started to come to see you. She wasn't a Christian. She started to come to these campus Bible talks. And she, was, she came regularly f- for a while. And I chatted to her one day and I said, really great to have you uh, coming along to things. Um, what keeps you coming? I was really hoping she was going to say, well, you know, all your talk about Jesus, that's what I'm really interested in. She said something quite different. She said, I feel safe amongst you. I said, tell, tell me what you mean. She said, well, with my other friends... I'm always on the defence. I always feel like they're trying to crack onto me. They're trying to seduce me. But amongst you, I don't feel that. I feel safe. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? For people to feel safe because of the way they're treated. Not just the the action, but even the language, the way we speak about and to each other. Now, I'm not saying we're perfect. We're not. All of us have got our feet muddy in some ways in this area, haven't we? Our walk is not this walk all the time. But it is a great testimony to the difference that Jesus makes to our lives. And I pray it continues. Walk in love. Second one is walk in the light. Verse 8. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Walk as children of light. Now, the image of light darkness about good and evil is pretty intuitive, isn't it? Because when do you do evil? You do it in the dark, don't you? It's, <laughs> when, when there's no light on, that, that's when we sort of know that we can do what we'd like to do but otherwise wouldn't be game to do. When I was uh, studying engineering at uni, uh, one of the events we studied in power engineering was the 1965 uh, blackout that blacked out most of northeast United States. So New York, like 30 million people were in blackout for almost a day. And in the darkness, all sorts of things happened. One of the things that happened that they were able to catalogue was the shoplifting that went on. Millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of stuff disappeared from the shelves of supermarkets and department stores. And one of the really interesting things was that it was pretty evenly spread across the different socioeconomic regions of the cities. 
It wasn't just in the poor areas shoplifting happened. It was in the wealthy, well-to-do areas as well. And remember, the subway was down. You couldn't go anywhere. So people only did it in their local area. People do it in the dark. And Paul's language here in verse 8 is very strong. He says, you were once darkness, but now you are light. You were once, well, evil. Not just that you did some evil things. You were darkness. We are darkness. Our heart is dark. That's a pretty pessimistic assessment of human nature, isn't it? And most people will object and say, no, 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 not, not me. That, that's not us. And most religions will reject that as well. Certainly Islam and Buddhism and other religions reject it. But I invite you to lift the lid on your own heart. And where does lust and greed come from? Where do, when you get angry, where does that come from? It comes from inside, doesn't it? You do those things. I do those things. It's a very famous trial of Adolf Eichmann. You heard of Adolf Eichmann? Probably not. He was one of the perpetrators and initiators of the Holocaust during the Second World War. That is, he, he, he created, helped to create the whole system of murdering Jews and um, uh, gypsies and other undesirables who they considered subhuman. In 1961, he was found, I think it was in Argentina, uh, and was put on trial in Jerusalem. Um, and a, a, a philosopher called uh, Hannah Arendt uh, attended almost all the days of the trial. And she wrote up her reflections in this book called Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. And that, that phrase, banality of evil, has actually sort of been, uh, it's become a meme, really, uh, a meme. Uh, it's it's uh, taken hold. What she said was, when I walked in, I expected Eichmann to be this monster, this clearly evil person, evil just radiating out of him. But actually, when I met him and when I observed him day after day after day as he talked, he was actually a pretty normal, average sort of guy. He, he wasn't a monster. And for her, that was very unsettling. Because if he wasn't a monster then how can I claim that I could never do what he did? See, if I can categorise him as a monster, then he's not like me. He's subhuman, I'm human, I'm not like him. But if he's just like me, I can do exactly what he did. And the flip side uh, um, is if I reject, if I categorise him as a monster, the Nazis were just monsters do you notice what I'm doing? I'm doing to them exactly what they did to the Jews. I'm saying they're different to me, therefore I can kill them. I can do away with them. So it's almost no matter which side I take on this, whether he's a monster or not a monster, I'm implicated, not because I've done it, but because I'm capable of doing it. There is darkness in my heart. We are darkness. Or at least Paul says, we were darkness. But now, he says, we are light. You were once darkness, verse 8, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. We've been enlightened by God's message, the gospel. We know the reality that Christ came and died for us and rose again for us. I was more evil than I was willing to confront. And God was more loving than I could imagine. But the change is much more than education. I've been enlightened by a message 
It's much more than being changed from ignorant to knowledge. It's changed of who I am from being darkness to being light in the Lord. That is, he has changed me. His love and life takes residence in our inner being. Let me ask you a question. If you're a Christian, are you optimistic or pessimistic about your sin? Uh, By pessimistic, I think I'm referring to the idea that, well, at heart, I'm a sinner. I'll never stop sinning. I probably can't stop myself sinning. I'm just a wretched sinner. Or the optimistic, yeah, I might have used to sin, but I'm not that anymore. I can live a life that isn't sinful. Now, where's Paul on this? Well, I think he's more on the optimistic side than the pessimistic side. He thinks something has really changed. I'm not just a person sold in sin anymore. He's not saying we can be perfect now. No, we can't. Because he's still got to urge us uh, uh, not uh, to walk um, in in evil. He's still got to urge us to shun the deeds of darkness in verse 11. We're we're not sinless. We're, We're still sinful, but we're not full of sin like we were before. God has made a difference He has made us alive in Christ. And so he urges us to walk in the light and expose those in the darkness. How do we expose those of darkness and the deeds of darkness? Well, I don't think it's by getting our big searchlight torch out and shining it in all the dark places, trying to catch people doing evil. No, we expose it simply by being light, by being different. When I uh, graduated from uni, I worked in an office for a while as an engineer. And there was another Christian who shared that office with me. And mainly non-Christians. I remember a morning where uh, the the thing that hit the news that day was a very prominent entertainer, a singer. um, had He was an older guy, about 65 or so. He'd begun an affair with his 20-year-old secretary. And there were photos of the two of them, the old guy and the very attractive young 20-year-old secretary on the front page of the newspapers and every uh, news website. And that created a fair bit of ribald discussion amongst the the, the people in the office. Jokes were were flying around. And then somebody noticed that my Christian friend had tears in his eyes. And somebody turned to him and said, what's wrong with you? And he simply said, I'm thinking what this is like for his wife. And about 10 seconds later, somebody said, what were the footy scores? (laughs) They wanted to change topic because suddenly their evil had been exposed just by him being light. And so he says, do what pleases the Lord. It's not hard to find out what pleases the Lord. It's love and goodness and righteousness and truth. So walk in love, walk in the light. And lastly, walk in wisdom. Verse 15. Be careful then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. What makes you wise is not education. It's not skill but understanding the Lord's will. Now, what is the Lord's will? There's different ways you can understand it, but the language has been used by Paul already in Ephesians. If you were with us earlier, you might remember Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. God has made known the mystery of his will to us, 
the, mist, the will he's purposed in Christ, which will come into full effect at the end of history, and his will is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's the will of God. And that's the will that he is achieving at the moment and will achieve finally and fully on the day of Christ. Now, if that's the truth, if that's reality, it's foolish to live as if that's not going to happen, isn't it? Because when you know what's going to happen in the future, it helps give you direction and purpose in life. If you knew that in two years' time, Curtin University would be the only university in Perth offering degrees, you'd know what to do, wouldn't you? Leave UWA, go to Curtin. It's pretty obvious. It's the only sensible, it's the only wise thing to do. Well, if you know that everything, everything in the universe will bow the knee to Christ, what will you do? How will you live? How will you walk? Well, you'll bow the knee to Christ yourself, won't you? Gladly, willingly. You'll seek to please him in all that you do. And you'll tell others that this is going to happen. Encourage them to bow the knee to Christ. And so in verse 16, he says, make the most of every opportunity. Literally, redeem the time. It's almost, he's envisaging that your life and my life has got a limited amount of time. And he wants us to redeem it, to buy it back, to, to make the most of it, um, whatever time we're given. Now, that applies immediately, doesn't it? I can apply that today. Make the most of any opportunities I have to please the Lord and even to speak up for him to others, to speak about Jesus. But it also would apply to my lifespan. Redeem the time. If averages average out for you, you'll probably live for another 50, 60 years. That's a time, isn't it? That's an opportunity that you've got. You've got 60 years to redeem and make the most of. That's a gift from God. What will you do with it? It would be foolish just to live like everybody who doesn't know that, who's not aware of where history is going and doesn't care. It's foolish to live a life of greed and self-gratification. And one thing, says Paul, it would be very foolish to get drunk. Verse 18, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. Now, it's a bit weird, verse 18. He says, don't get drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. He doesn't say, fill yourself with the Spirit. As if I get the Spirit and I sort of shove him into me, get more of the Spirit and push him in till I'm bloated with the Spirit. It's passive. Be filled. Let the Spirit fill you. It's very hard to do a passive, isn't it? Uh, you know, uh, uh, be, full, be full of lunch. Like, how do you do that? You've got to eat lunch, don't you? How do you be filled with the Spirit? Well, I think what he's saying is, let your fullness be the sort of fullness the Spirit produces, not the sort that alcohol produces. Now, you know the, the sort of fullness alcohol produces, don't you? You see it often around you. I hope you don't see it too close to home. What sort of fullness does the Spirit produce? Falling down? Paralysed? Laughing uncontrollably? Now, Paul explains it with three ideas, three big ideas. 
in verses 19 to 21. The fullness of the Spirit means speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord. It involves speaking, speaking to each other, using your tongue with psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. That is, that's about the content of your singing, the truths of the gospel that come out of your mouth as you sing to one another. And the result of that, he says, is that it leads you to make music in your hearts to God. If you were here for the Easter service, it was wonderful to have a few of us sing that song, Man of Sorrows. Now my debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. They sang that to us for our edification, for our enjoyment, for our joy in the Lord. But as they sang it to us, and they sang it to us for our joy in the Lord, I couldn't help but rejoice in the Lord. My heart overflowed with them in singing to, to God. And that's very different to obscenity and coarse joking, isn't it? That's polar opposite to that. That's what the fullness of the Spirit looks like. Secondly, it's giving thanks always in every circumstance. That's what the Spirit does. And thirdly, submitting. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because the Spirit has brought us to submit to Jesus to bow our knees to him, but also brings us to submit to others who have some sort of leadership and authority over us. Next week, we're going to explore this in more detail because he goes on to talk about things like marriage and family and work. And marriage is the one that I think is quite difficult and challenging for us. So we're going to spend some time next week, but next week it's only Thursday. If you go Tuesdays, Anzac Day, come Thursday, you're in the right, right place this week. And we'll explore what submitting means. So what is God calling us to do? If you're a Christian, he's calling us to walk the walk. Walk in love, walk in the light, walk in wisdom. Walk the walk of the person God has now made you. Not the walk of what you were before you became a Christian, not the walk of the people out there, the world we inhabit, but the, the, the walk that is appropriate for those who know Jesus. Walk in love, knowing how deeply you've been loved by Christ. And so giving yourself in love for others, not self-indulgent or self-gratification. Walk as children of light. God's light has flooded your life. Transparent goodness and honesty. There's nothing hidden in the shadows with God. There's no shame there. Walk as children of light. And walk in wisdom knowing the will and the plan of the Lord. God's revealed to you where history's going, so walk in line with that. Now, I want to give you just a minute for you to work out what that might mean for you personally. I'm going to stop talking and ask you just to reflect, what sort of walk does this mean for you? What do you want to change to walk in love and light and wisdom? A minute just for you to reflect and think. And then I'll pray.